0: Well, if you've got your Bibles, can you turn to John chapter 3, one of the passages that I'm sure we all... It contains a Bible verse, at least, that many of us know extremely. In fact, it's probably one of the most well-known verses in it. Um, I was talking to some students during the week at the school I'm at, and I mentioned John three sixteen, 16. And, and this is a school where 70% of the students come from non-churched backgrounds. And even just saying John three sixteen, half the class launch into a song... Um, and it was actually quite painful, but anyway. <laughs> and it's also that uh, I was doing a little bit of research during the week, um, as you would hope when you're preaching on John 3, I guess. But and uh, I found out for those that love American football, there's a player called Tim Tebow. And uh, <laughs> there we go. There's a few that love it. Tim Tebow in his college final, apparently got the black eyeliner and, and John 3.16 underneath his eyes, and apparently that caused uh, a massive Google search as well of people that were watching the final, then searching, well, what is John 3.16? Um, and it's also a verse that in the 80s, a guy got uh, saved, and we'll work out as we work through this passage, what is it to be saved? Um, but this guy became a Christian and, in, and decided that he would go around to all the major sporting events, the Olympics, the World Cup, rugby, soccer, and banner. John three sixteen. So this is a well known chapter, but I've got to tell you, when I was preparing this sermon, I fell in love with so much more than just this one verse. It's a great verse, but there is some wonderful goodness throughout this whole chapter. Um, but we're going to read John three one to twenty one. Hopefully, that was enough time for you to find John chapter three. Let's read. No one has ascended into heaven except he who ascended from heaven, the the Son of Man, who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Heavenly Father, we ask that this morning, we ask that this morning your Holy Spirit would blow like the wind in this room, that you would initiate, that you would initiate many eyes to see and hear what you are teaching us this morning, in Jesus' name, Amen. When I was growing up, I loved a band called called Pearl Jam, and uh, Mike Passo might tell you that I learnt to play guitar for other reasons. And many times, uh, Mike and I several years ago ran some camps and, and he would tell you, his version of the story is that whenever he was trying to find me on these camps, he would, he would stumble into a room hearing uh, me and uh, playing guitar, but just to impress girls. But really, that wasn't the reason I learnt to play guitar. <laughs> the reason I learnt to play guitar actually is because I loved the band Pearl Jam and there was particular songs. In fact, the first song that I wanted to learn to play was Better Man. You may know the song. You may know the band. But anyway, I loved Pearl Jam. And so I tried to teach myself as many Pearl Jam songs as I could. And I would do my best Eddie Vedder impersonation. The lead singer of the band has kind of a unique voice. And I would try and uh, adopt that whenever I sang. And uh, so as you would imagine, as some of you, I've told this story to some of you before. But when I heard that Pearl Jam were coming to Sydney... I did what you do when your band that you love is coming to Sydney, right? I went and, and tried to get tickets. And myself and, a, and another friend, Matt, we got some tickets. And we were so excited because this is the band that I've loved for, for years, the, the songs that I've been singing for years. And now I finally have the chance to go and see Pearl Jam. And so we went, we enter... And we're guided by the stewards to our seats. And we sort of enter and they go, oh, it's up the next level. And so, we, OK, we go up the next level. It's not too bad. And they're actually directed to the next level again. Oh, OK, it's, maybe it is bad. And by the time we actually find our seats, Matt and I are basically in the nosebleed section. You can't really get further back. Uh, and so this idea that I was going to see Pearl Jam, that, that kind of disappeared because I wasn't seeing Pearl Jam. I was watching a, a screen at best to see them and I wasn't actually physically seeing Pearl Jam, and I thought, this is not good enough, all right? This is my band. This is the band that I love. I've got to get closer. And so Matt and I came up with this kind of scheme, rightly or wrongly, more wrongly. We decided that we were going to, if we just look like we belong in the special marked-off area, and if we just walk with confidence into that area as though we belong, we'll, we'll be right. We'll be right once we get down there, Right? So we we walk all the way down, winding our way back down where we would just come. And uh, we found the entrance. And of course, there's many stewards on this special entrance. But we thought, look, let's just walk with confidence. And we walk and we get about 10 meters in. And we think we're almost in. And then we get called back. (laughs) And it didn't happen. We didn't have what was necessary. They called us back and they said, show us your tickets. Have you got the right ticket to enter to see Pearl Jam from this this distance from uh, close proximity, and we did not. So we didn't have what was necessary. We were lacking to, to uh, be able to enter and see Pearl Jam. This morning in John 3, we, we come across a conversation between a biblical scholar, Nicodemus, and he's having a conversation with a carpenter's son, Jesus. And in this conversation, it becomes... The, the main point of topic is about the kingdom of God. And and the main point is actually what is necessary to see and to enter the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, this place that the Jews have been longing for, this place that, that they envisioned where this broken world would be made right, where God, ruling as a king, would be fully realized. This broken world would be made right under God's good rule. We, we might prefer the term heaven. And so the topic of conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus is what is necessary to enter, to see heaven? It's an important one, isn't it? It's an important uh, question to ask. And so I want us to walk through considering what is necessary. But very quickly it becomes very clear What is necessary? You must be born again. And so if there's a title, if you want a title for this morning's talk, it's simply that. You must be born again. If we want to go to heaven, if we want to enter, if we want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. So as far as I can see in this passage, I'm going to break it down into two points. Why can't we enter heaven? And what hope do we have? Why can't we enter heaven? And what hope do we have? You must be born again. So if you've got your Bibles open, let's start right from the start of the chapter, verse 1. Why can't we enter heaven? Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. Very quickly, we, we, we have to understand that the Pharisees were a, uh, a unique group of people who would be incredibly educated in the Old Testament, in the Jewish scriptures. And these, these Pharisees were, were the Bible guy, right? They, they knew it so well. Uh, and they, they loved obedience, so as soon as you see the, the name or the term or the noun, Pharisee, straight away we've got to think, okay, these are doing people. They do obedience really well. That's the Pharisees. And so what do we learn straight away about Nicodemus? He's a Pharisee. He does obedience really well. For Some of the things that I've read about Pharisees, that they so were keen to observe uh, the law about keeping the Sabbath, that a Pharisee wouldn't carry any more than a gulp of milk on them because they didn't want to have to be considered doing more work. All right? So they would, they would come up with different separate rules to guard against the laws that they found in the Old Testament. It, it's kind of like if, if there was a rule, it would be a weird rule, but if there was, if there was a rule about don't touching this, if, there, if that was God's law, the Pharisees would say, right, well, well, just to, to ensure that we, we want to obey God, because they were zealous to obey God, let's make sure, how about we, we keep like a two meter radius so that we are not even tempted to touch this and then they might kind of go to an even greater extreme over the years it might become well you know what just to ensure that we don't touch this how about we say no one can enter into this room and then we'll never never be tempted to even break the law of god that's how strict the pharisees were and this what we learn straight away is when we meet nicodemus he's a pharisee and he's not just a pharisee we keep reading we discover that he's a ruler of the jews all right. So he's not just a Pharisee, he is one of the, uh, the 70 who would have presided in the Sanhedrin, who would have ruled over and made uh, important decisions for the nation of Israel. For every Jew, wherever they be, the Sanhedrin would have uh, looked to the, these, these uh, Jews to make these decisions. Here we, we have Nicodemus, a ruler. He is incredibly educated, he's been schooled well. In the Old Testament, such that he would be a ruler. Later on, we'll find out that he's actually even the teacher of teachers. It's kind of like the Archbishop of Sydney, okay? An incredibly bright man, very smart when it comes to the Bible, very educated very good okay it's the it's the it's the don carson if you know or the wayne grudem incredibly smart the kind of guy that teaches others how to teach the bible all right this is nicodemus the ruler the teacher the pharisee he is a good guy you would think he's he's the guy that is he's there every sunday he's at every life group he is singing loudest this is nicodemus and so we read that he comes, uh, this man, this man, Nicodemus, verse 2, came to Jesus by night. I'm not sure if we should make too much of that. Later on in the Bible, we, we hear in, later on in John's Gospel, we hear of Nicodemus. And again, it's mentioned that he's the one that came by night. Some people make something of that as if... And, and John's Gospel at times is, is cloaked in symbolism, Right? And there are times when night and darkness symbolizes uh, spiritual darkness in the soul. Certainly, you could could look at Nicodemus as we progress through this and you you would see that, yeah, he is spiritually dark. But at the same time, we know that there's big crowds who are pursuing and following Jesus. And someone of such importance like Nicodemus, to try and get in and have a conversation with Jesus away from the crowds, it would make sense to go at night. And so Nicodemus, this Pharisee, this ruler, the teacher of teachers, comes at night to Jesus and he says, Rabbi, which is just a respectful term. So he begins, well, Rabbi, teacher, we know that you're a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. I think, look, he begins well, he begins with a Rabbi term and and respectful teacher, but then he's straight away on to kind of just stating, okay, we know. So I'm a classroom teacher. And in, in many ways, I'm the one that is the, if you want to call me teacher, then I'm the one that my job by very description is to teach, to impart knowledge to others. And yet how often do the students come to me and they aren't asking questions, they want to straight off the bat tell me what they already know. And it's kind of condescending. It's a little bit arrogant, that as if they... This 13 year old knows more about PDHP than me. Uh, And it happens all the time. And here we have Nicodemus, I think in some ways a little bit condescending, coming to Jesus straight off the bat. He hasn't asked a question. He's kind of, Look, we know. I represent some very important people. And I've actually already got you boxed, Jesus. I know who you are. I know a fair bit about you but I'm coming just to sort of scope you out a bit more but you know just so you know who the important person is in this conversation it's me Nicodemus I'm the one that's kind of got things worked out so I know things I'm not asking questions I'm kind of here to impart my knowledge you you're blessed that I'm here and it's a challenge to us. I think it's a challenge for us to think, okay, how often do you approach Jesus like that? How often do you approach Jesus with a we know or already know? I've got things worked out, Jesus. I come to Jesus and, and uh, perhaps there's a certain issue in my life that I don't go to Jesus at all even because I just assume I know. I already have things worked out. And isn't that a little bit condescending? Isn't that a little bit arrogant when we, when we have access to Jesus? And we don't come asking questions. We come assuming that we already have things worked out. We already know. We already have things in the right boxes, we think. So he comes and he says, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus, seeing that in, in other words... Nicodemus is kind of on a path of doing things. He knows who he is. He's a a rule of the Jews and he's already placed much importance on that. We know. We know. We've got things worked out. Jesus responds in a way that straight away is very confronting. Jesus says, Truly, truly. When I was growing up, if my parents turned to me and said, Mark Jeffrey Pavey Williams, you knew you were meant to listen. you knew that what was coming after that was very important. Here, when when someone says, truly, truly, and three times Jesus is going to say to Nicodemus, truly, truly. In other words, he's saying, Mark Jeffrey Pavy williams listen up. This is important. What I'm about to say is important. Truly, truly, Nicodemus, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But this is Nicodemus that Jesus is talking to. This is Nicodemus the Pharisee. In the first century, it would have been absolutely assumed that all Jews would enter and experience and see God's kingdom, God's good rule, God establishing his reign and making all these wrongs right. Nicodemus would have assumed that. How confronting then... As Nicodemus is approached from a place of saying, We know, Jesus has responded saying, Nicodemus, for all that you do, you actually don't have the ticket to go and see Pearl Jam. You actually don't have what is necessary to see and enter the kingdom of God. It'd be like if I went and saw, if I went and tried out for the Australian ballet, some giggle. I didn't realise I'd be that bad, but no, it's true. If I went and tried out for the Australian Ballet and they turned around and said to me, your best hope is that you be born again. They're basically saying you haven't got a hope. There is no hope for you. You aren't going to make the Australian Ballet. Your best hope is that you be born again, Mark. No hope. Don't have what's necessary. And so that's what he says to to Nicodemus. Truly, truly, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. It's interesting, isn't it? Because Nicodemus is this guy that knew a lot about the kingdom of God. He's the Bible guy. And yet he, he doesn't actually possess and have what's necessary to actually see the kingdom of God. It's possible. It's possible to be that person who knows and has the knowledge and yet you've never seen it. It's possible for a blind man to speak with a knowledge about a rainbow, and yet they may never have seen one. It's possible for someone to sit in church and speak with a great depth of knowledge, and yet it is not the knowledge that enables someone to ever, ever, ever see the kingdom of God you must be born again Jesus says Nicodemus responds verse 4 Nicodemus said to him how how can a man be born when he is old can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born And it's a good question. I think, again, though, what's happening is Nicodemus, in his world of doing, in his world of obeying obeying God, and you've got to do stuff to enter heaven, he's kind of still in that mindset. He's still kind of, okay, what do I have to do? All right, okay, you're saying I've got to do something. All right, well, okay, how do I do that then, Jesus? No, 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 Nicodemus, you're missing the point. Jesus answered, verse 5, truly, truly, listen up. I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. In other words, what is necessary, Nicodemus? I've got to remind you here. You love the Bible, Nicodemus? Let me remind you. Let me use language and words that you will get. And so here, as best to my knowledge from what we can see, Jesus is is talking to the guy that would be so well versed in the Old Testament. So Jesus takes him to the Old Testament. He takes him to Ezekiel 36 and 37 where there is clear imagery of people who are dead in, in, uh, in their spirits, if you like, and they are dirty and they need spiritual cleansing. And the language of water and spirit is there as if this is necessary to enter the kingdom of God. And in, verse th- in chapter 37 of Ezekiel, there's this picture of these dry bones that are Birthed to life, where a new birth has happened in conjunction with this spiritual cleansing. He's saying, Nicodemus, for all your knowledge, for all your doing and doing what you think is good, you are still dirty. You are still dirty and found wanting and not having what is necessary. I played in a soccer tournament last weekend, and I played several games, and I haven't played in a while. But this is pretty standard Mark Williams soccer, um, where uh, it's, 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 say ballet. It's well, I'd like to think I'm a little bit better at soccer than ballet. But although I'm getting worse in soccer, the older I get, and the, anyway, that's another story. Um, <laughs> we're playing soccer, and. Uh, If someone gets past me, I'm not afraid to just throw my body around a bit here and there. And uh, in soccer terms, it's often called a slide tackle. Um, And so I'll try and throw my body and try and slide my body in front to get the ball. Got to get the ball first or you're in trouble. Um, And often I'll come off the field and I'll have a lack of skin that was there before the game has now gone. And so there's this area here. And I played three games on the Saturday and one on the Sunday. And this area was lacking a lot of skin by the end of the tournament. Um, But on the Saturday night, there was a lot of dirt in there as well. And so as painful as it is, I was rubbing and scrubbing, trying to get the dirt out because it infects you. It's hard. All right, And look, obedience can be hard, right? Obeying can be hard to persevere in obeying. And I was working, trying to get this dirt out. But you know what? And it looked good. On the outside, it looked like I'd gotten rid of all the dirt. But I hadn't. Something else had happened and I was actually infected. And so this this wound was now infected. For all my attempts to clean it, for all my efforts to do I'd failed and I was actually infected. It infected my inner being even, if you like. And he's saying, Nicodemus, you do things well and, and you work and you work and you do, but there's a deeper problem. You're infected and you need a spiritual cleansing, Nicodemus, because for all your good doing, for all your obedience, you fall short, you lack, you don't have what is necessary to enter. You must... You must be born again to enter the kingdom of God, to see heaven. It's confronting for Nicodemus, who all his life would have assumed he was good enough, that his obedience was was for sure good enough, that he certainly had what was necessary. And now he's told he doesn't. It gets even more confronting. Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Like gives birth to like. A dog has a baby and it's a dog. A cat has a baby and it's a cat. Nicodemus, you are someone who is spiritually dead. We read in Ephesians 2 that we are dead in our sin. That in our very nature we are sinful. it, It is that our preference even, our natural preference is that we don't even want to treasure and value God as we ought. It's like Jesus' parable where he told that there was a man having a great banquet. And he sent out invites to people. This is an awesome banquet. You've got to really pitch that this banquet is beautiful and delicious. It's it's mm-hmm. valuable. It'd be stunningly foolish to miss out, and yet the people who get these invites have a preference. They actually value something else. They don't see how valuable. They don't see, they don't have the eyes to see how valuable it is to actually be invited to this banquet. And Nicodemus is like that. He's so values his works, his obedience, that he's not valuing God, that he is in sin, he is spiritually dead. And as flesh gives birth to flesh, Nicodemus, who is spiritually dead, cannot birth himself. No, for someone who is spiritually dead, for that to be brought to life, the spirit has to work. The spirit has to bring Nicodemus to life. Isn't that extraordinary? He has just put it so far out of reach for Nicodemus, this man who previously thought he had all that he could do to actually enter, and now Jesus said, actually, you can't do anything. It is out of your reach. You can't do anything. Just as you had no say in your first birth, I'm pretty sure none of you did, you have no say in your spiritual birth. It is altogether a work of God. That is incredibly humbling and incredibly confronting. That if you want to be born again, Nicodemus, actually you can't do anything. It's like saying to the cricket player, all right, go out there, you need to hit a six. Oh, but I'm taking your bat. I'm removing everything that is actually required. You can't now do it in and of yourself. You can't. Entering and being born again is something you can't do. Oh, but it's necessary. That's, that's the stark realization of, of humanity, of how spiritually dead we are and, and, and how confronting and offensive our sin is to a holy God that we are now so removed. The effects, the infection has affected us so badly that we have no hope in and of ourselves, no hope. And then we read, Do not marvel that I said to you, verse 7, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Again, it is the initiative of God. I've been on a few sailing camps. I'm not a sailor, but I've been on a few camps, and many times I like to go fast. And when I'm sitting in a boat on Lake Macquarie and just chugging along a little bit, oh, I would love to be able to control the wind. I would love to be able to control the wind and and allow a big gush to come. Or when you're sitting around a campfire, and how often is it that you sit here, the campfire's in the middle, and all of a sudden the wind is blowing and the smoke is getting you, and you think, okay, I'll move to this side. And then, where's the wind blow now? Okay, right, you can't seem to escape. And oh, how I would love to control the wind, but you can't control the wind. You can't control the wind. It's like that. The new birth, being born again, is altogether something that is out of your control. It is the initiative of God. You are like the whale who is stranded. And to get back into the water, it's out of your control. You need someone else to act upon you. You must be born again, but it's God's initiative for you to be born again. It is absolutely, completely a work of the Spirit. So what hope do we have? What hope do we have then? Right now, it seems like in this conversation, if you were Nicodemus, you'd be thinking, this is hopeless for me, right? Verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, How can these things these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel? Are you the one that teaches other people how to teach? Are you the, the theological expert, the biblical scholar? And you don't get this. Are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? Mark Jeffrey Pabey Williams, Truly, truly, I say to you, listen up. We speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen but you do not receive our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe? If I tell you heavenly things, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. In other words, Nicodemus, you've come as if you're the one who has authority. Let me tell you, I am the one who has authority. I am the Son of Man who has ascended. And we want to talk about things of heaven. I've ascended from heaven, Nicodemus, so listen up you want to hear the the truth about entering heaven, then listen to the one who ascended, who descended from heaven, who has come down from heaven. Listen up. And then, whilst I said 3.16 is a very well-known verse, over this week of studying this passage, I love and fell deeply in love with the next verse. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the Son of Man be lifted up. I'm obviously going to have to explain that so that you fall in love with that too. (laughs) But that stirs my heart when I read that even now. So to understand this, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, we need to actually understand where this is. He's talking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus is the expert in the Old Testament. So let's go there. Numbers 21. Don't be afraid to use your contents. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. Twenty-one. Numbers 21, it's good to hear the sound of flicking pages. Verse 4, Numbers 21, verse 4. From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water and we loathe this worthless food. Verse 6, Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This is incredibly confronting too. This is, this is a passage where Jesus takes Nicodemus and again, he's just again confronting. These people deserve to die. You read this and you think, do they really deserve that? Do they really deserve to die for grumbling? I grumble all the time, and here are people who have grumbled, complained, and God says that that this in this situation they deserve death. and so what does He send? If you're a Jew who knows the Old Testament, are you like a fan of serpents? No. Nah. So what does he send? He sends the very thing that, if we know Genesis one, Genesis three well, the very serpent was was what caused this world to be fallen. Well, not caused, but in that picture was was involved and and uh, helping people or assisting or being there where people uh, sinned. And here is this picture of serpents, these things that people would have loathed. It's a horrible scene, isn't it? Serpents biting the Lord's people that He has just rescued. Serpents. These people getting what they deserved. And so how are they rescued? How are they, these people rescued from this horrible, horrible picture? They're told that that if they lift their eyes up and acknowledge the very curse that they have, look at the very thing that that has cursed them, look at what they themselves deserve, the venom uh, flowing through them, and look up at the very thing that, that has brought that upon them, the very thing that they deserve. If they look up and see a serpent lifted up, they will live. Nicodemus is saying, What hope do we Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, What hope do you have? Just as in this scene where, where you needed to realize how you deserve death, you need to have a low view of yourself, not so high, Nicodemus, knock a few pegs off. You need to realize you deserve death. And just as these people lifted their eyes up, And acknowledged in that, yes, this is what we deserve. That serpent, I deserved that. That serpent is what I deserved. So you too, Nicodemus, what hope do you have to be born again? Find yourself lifting your eyes up to the Son of Man. Lift it up. Find yourself lowering your view that you have no hope, that all your good works are rubbish. They're worthless. Knowing the Bible really well, will that get to heaven? No, wrong. Going to church every week, will that get you to heaven? Wrong. Lift your eyes up and see a man cursed in your place, receiving what you deserve. Galatians 3.13 makes it incredibly clear that Christ became cursed for us. The gospel, if you like, in four words. Jesus in my place. Jesus in my place. Here Jesus is talking and pointing Nicodemus to the future where he will later be lifted up, cursed, receiving what Nicodemus, what you, what I deserve. It's confronting, isn't it? Because when you read Numbers 21, you think, did they really deserve that? And how often do we look at our sin and and trivialize it? Last week, Dave taught us that, that how easily we trivialize what is really important to us, what is really important to God. I think this week I want to challenge us, and I want to be challenged. How easily do we trivialize our sin? As if it doesn't really matter. Lift your eyes up to the Son of Man who is receiving what the venom that flows through you deserves. He is taking what you deserve. In Him dying. Are you amazed by the cross? Or do you grow over familiar with it? I think I heard about um, uh, forklift truck drivers and how they apparently, as they drive all day, And they reverse and go forward, and they reverse and go forward. Whenever those forklifts go backwards, they make a sound. Beep, beep, beep. And apparently, forklift truck drivers are are so familiar with it they don't even hear it. Do you become so familiar with the cross that you don't even get how serious sin is? That it is what you deserve. Do you trivialize sin that the cross is no longer amazing? Sometimes we we are so um, uh, aware of grace and we forget about mercy that you are not getting what you deserve, that you are not getting what you deserve, that when you see Jesus in my place, you be reminded I deserve that. And that is scandalous. It is only in seeing that I deserve that, that I realize I have an incredible Savior. May we be a church that doesn't grow over familiar with with that. So verse 14 became a beautiful verse for me. For someone who so quickly can trivialize my sin to be reminded that Christ was in my place. That he was cursed in the way that I ought to be. That my sin, my grumbling, my pride, my sin deserves death. And he died for me. He took what I deserve. And Jesus here is saying, lift your eyes up. That whoever believes, verse 15 in him, may have eternal life. Esteem yourself low, Nicodemus, and esteem high, the one lifted up. Esteem yourself low, and esteem highly, Christ. Do not find your identity in self-esteem, in loving yourself. No, esteem yourself low, and find your identity in in the fact that, for God loved you, verse 16. The greatest love is never going to be that you can love yourself. The greatest love is that you would find identity in being loved by the greatest. For God so loved this fallen, broken world that he gave the greatest gift that you will ever find, the greatest gift being his son, that whoever, here is the greatest invitation, whoever would lift his eyes up, would believe in Jesus, would cast himself completely on the one lifted up in his place, would, would cast himself and all that he is on Jesus. It's like for me, it brings to mind, uh, going away in the summer holidays two years ago. And some of us from this church, we went and found a little river hole uh, about six hours north. We were up near Cos Harbour. And we found a river hole, and on the side of the river was a big rope, and we decided we were going to have a swing on the rope, so I went up and had it go. Now, at that moment when you're holding the rope, you put all your weight on that rope. and it's a bit of a height, and so at that moment it's a test of trust. If that rope's going to fail, what you will fail. If that rope succeeds, then you succeed cast yourself and trust and rely all that you are on Jesus. That whoever, whoever would lift their eyes up, would lift their eyes up, believe, would, would receive Him, would cast yourself completely on what He has done in your place, would believe in Him, should not perish. But here is the greatest promise, the greatest assurance that you would have eternal life. He will not fail you. You would have eternal life. It's it's another way of saying that you will enter the kingdom of God. You must be born again. What hope do you have? You have one who became cursed in your place. Jesus in my place. Jesus in your place. And then... it just so that we're clear, it's reversed. For Nicodemus, who was so much on about that it's, you've got to do stuff, you've got to do stuff to enter the, he- the kingdom of God. And I think so often the church can, can make this mistake throughout history that, that we emphasize the outward behavior first and foremost and put the wrong emphasis on that as if that is upheld and that is most important. Just so that we're clear on this, Jesus goes on in verse 21 to say, no, 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 these will be the overflow of, of someone who delights in the light. These will be the overflow. The behavior will come after the birth. You must be born again and then your behavior will be affected and changed. I think, again, too easily we can kind of have a skewed vision of spiritual disciplines, of reading the Bible and praying, as if those things are going to fix us and make us right to get to heaven. They're wonderful gifts and means to lift your eyes up on the one who fixes us, the author and perfecter of life. May they only ever be means to that, to lifting your eyes up again and again. And in that, reminding yourself that Christ, that the Spirit has birthed in you the ability to lift your eyes up, all together a work of God. Here's initiative, that we would esteem ourselves not that we would grieve the sin, not being condemned by our sin, but grieve the sin that put Christ on the cross in my place and cast ourselves completely on Him. Be reminded of how incredibly loved you are by the greatest love you will ever find. For some of us, I pray that the Spirit is, is moving right now, that... The wind is blowing within this room and perhaps you are finding yourself within your heart a quickening to want to lift your eyes up for the first time. Perhaps for some of us, you have been playing the games like Nicodemus where you have been going to church and for the first time your heart is being quickened to actually see your sin for what it is, to actually see your need to lift your eyes up. Do it now. Don't waste the time. Do it now. Get right with the Lord by lifting your eyes up and and praying, Lord, thank you. I'm sorry that I'm a sinner. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying in my place. Cast yourself completely on him. We come across Nicodemus later on in John's Gospel. John 19. And we see Nicodemus doing exactly that. Nicodemus... John 19, verse 38, After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes. I don't know at what point Nicodemus was perhaps born again. But here we have Nicodemus at the other end of the story where clearly his eyes have been lifted up to someone, the Son of Man being lifted up, cursed on a tree. Here, no doubt, going through his mind is this conversation that he's just had in John 3 where he's been reminded of numbers. He's been reminded of Ezekiel. And for Nicodemus, who is is entrenched and and, 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 uh, saturated in the Old Testament, how rich it would have been to have seen the Son of Man literally lifted up in his place. May we be a people, may we be a church who regularly, daily, are richly, deeply saturated in the truth of, of Jesus was lifted up for us. You must be born again. What hope do you have? Lift your eyes up. Jesus paid it all. Jesus in my place. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord. What other response can we have but thankfulness? Lord, that this entering of heaven that requires new birth is your work. That we find in our hearts a desire to treasure and value you. That we find in our hearts a desire to lift our eyes up to what we deserve, to picture and glance and stare at what we deserve and yet not us, receiving it, but one in our place, the Son of Man in our place. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Amen.